Screen Talk is brought to you by OJ, Made in America, from ESPN Films. The most celebrated documentary of the year, it's the defining cultural tale of modern America, a saga of race, celebrity, media, violence, and the criminal justice system. Two decades after its unforgettable climax, it continues to fascinate, polarize, and even develop new chapters. And it's won a lot of awards. IDEA Award, IFP Scott Award, the Critics' Choice Documentary Award, the National Board of Review Award, the New York Film Critics' Circle Award, and the Chicago Film Critics' Circle Award for Best Documentary. Director Ezra Edelman's epic film about the trial of the century has been hailed by A.O. Scott of the New York Times as a triumph of archival research. It's also a masterpiece of insight, a rare documentary with the heft and sprawl of great literature. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times raves, it's a movie so compelling you never want it to end. O.J., Made in America. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large out in Los Angeles. And Ann, this is our last podcast of 2016. We're going to take next week off. So lots to discuss, starting with big news, the, the kind of thing that really shakes up the Oscar race, the Makeup and hairstyling shortlist, <laughs> <laughs> which everyone was 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 hankering to to find you know, out. Which... You know why this is so funny? I, I I know it sounds funny, but part of what goes on at this time of year is everybody's trying to figure it out and read the tea leaves, and they kind of know. Some people don't know. A lot of the people who cover the awards are very hung up on you know the accretion of. I'm sorry, Eric, but. Critics Awards, <laughs> and the you know with the Critics Choice early and the Golden Globes and SAG early and everything, you know everybody's like SAG is more um, predictive actually of what actors might do, and and that's a big branch in the Academy. But in in general, the while you can get momentum and you can get some some cred from for, or want to see created by. By the Critics Awards, it doesn't mean that that the Academy, and I'm very aware of this because I talk to people and they say, "Oh, I saw this and I saw that, and I haven't seen this yet and I haven't seen that yet," and they're all like sitting down with their piles of screeners over the holidays, and and in Maui and Hawaii and Aspen and. Santa Barbara and wherever they may be. Other parts and of the world, not just maybe the US. they've gone somewhere else. Yeah. They've gone to London or Paris. And 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 they're they're sitting down with their with their screeners and and, and judging these movies themselves. It isn't about what the critics think. Yeah, but I mean that's why you this hair and makeup thing was so interesting because I was actually trying to figure this out ahead of time. And I was looking, I was just trying to come up with what would the movies be? That the hairstyle, you know, they they look at heavy, real life, old fashioned prosthetic makeup, and they look at, um, you know, fancy, cost, you know, uh, hair and period, and it's either something like a big battle carnage kind of thing, or a big um, cartoon movie, or or it's a some kind of. Uh, um, you know, Florence, Florence Foster Jenkins is the perfect example of what they would go for. And Hail Caesar. I'm predicting here and now that Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie, which is period, and it's Hollywood, and it's all these different kinds of costumes and hair and effects and things, it, it could do well in the tech crafts. Yeah, but I mean, isn't it, uh, the, the thing that's so strange about that is that it's not the most visible kind of transformation, you know, 
Hail Caesar does make sense and because it's such a showbiz kind of a movie. But what about the what, Star what, Trek tell, Beyond or something like that? It's really, all right. So here we have we have very obvious candidate for I would say is Deadpool. Very very clear uh, makeup effects. It's kind of great to see that movie sneak into any Oscar conversation. I mean, it got that Golden Globe nomination. But it's do, do, do these categories also benefit from whether or not people like the movie in a yes. broader sense? Yes, I think so. And, and, and so then you have, you know, the dressmaker, you know, from, from Australia, and you have with Kate Winslet, which wasn't a big box office sensation and didn't do very well with the critics, but you could maybe see that turn up in costumes, too. This is a sign that it could turn up in other places. And, and by the way, Florence Foster Jenkins is doing well in general, it did well with SAG too, um, and then you have Star Trek Beyond. You're right, and Suicide Squad. These are all very flashy movies, like Guardians of the Galaxy in its day. Um, so this, the, the surprise entry was this movie called A Man Called Uve, which is the Swedish Oscar entry. And you've been practicing that pronunciation there. Uve. A lot of people say Uve. Uve. <laughs> I always think about Carl Uwe Nasgaard, the, the writer That's of right. The Struggle. Like, That's I thought right. when I first saw that listed, I thought it was like a documentary about him or something. But That uh, I would like to see because yeah, I have I know, a right? major crush on that guy. I think he's one of the great <laughs> writers of our time. But in any case, um, that movie is has the hair and makeup team that were involved in the last year surprise Swedish nomination, <laughs> the 100-year-old man who climbed out the window and disappeared. And so that's Love Larsen and Eva von Barr. And it's, a, it's an old guy, you know. That's, that's why Florence Foster Jenkins would be in there, too, because Meryl likes to transform, and Iron Lady would be the perfect example of something that would do well in this category. But that film is also worth looking at because it's shortlisted in the way in which a lot of us weren't familiar with it, and yet it has been doing well commercially. I mean, there's it is the highest-grossing foreign language movie of the year, and at three point three million. Part there's two things that are weird about that. One is that it opened in September, which doesn't always happen with a movie that the distributor Music Box Films, which has a good track record, by the way, with foreign foreign language films. They did Ida. And took that all the way to the Oscar. And, and they did... Uh, Monsieur Lazar a few years ago. Right. Did Potiche well. did well. Um, uh, th- that uh, uh, French movie... Um, what's it called? Tell My Name. Um, there's, there's a, there's a lot no of... Tell No One. Yeah, Tell No One. Tell That's No right. One. That's yeah, right. Yeah, a lot of range right there. Yeah, and and they they tend to, and they did the girl with the dragon tattoo trilogy from and and they were the ones who saw this the the point in doing that um, and they got the Swedish uh, film people to put up a man called Uva um, for uh, the uh, Oscar and and it's been screening really well and they the reason they opened it in September was because they knew that it actually had um, a big bestseller behind it which I didn't know that that book was already like selling 2 million copies, 1 million, 1 million copies in America, over 2 million around the world, 2.8 million around the world. So that raises a really interesting question. When we talk about this, the foreign language film category, which you know, we got into this last week and some of the films we were shocked to see not make the list, 
it seemed like Tony Erdman was the absolute front runner from the get go, just because we've been talking about that movie since Can, and it's a critical favorite and all that kind of stuff. But it is not the easiest sell. By no contrast. Now the word yeah. I get back from people who even like it is that it's too long. It's and a, when I interviewed, well over two hours. It's a very complex tone. I really love the movie. Me too. Me too. It's on. Both of us I mean, put it on our ten best yeah. list. But, but you yeah, talked. It was number twelve for me. Ah, <laughs> sorry, Chris, sorry about that. I did anyway. Um, but Marinade, she admitted to me that when they went through the edit on it, they knew it was long, and they tried really hard to cut it down and cut it down and cut it down, and it didn't work. They just didn't think it worked as well. And then in the end, she said, well, maybe I could have taken 10 minutes. But at that point, I figured I might as well I mean, you gotta, go all I, the way. I don't mind that. I loved American Honey, which is a movie people said was too long. I think uh, sometimes uh, when, it, when it pushes past a certain safety level or the threshold can be liberating, if you're open to that experience, it just makes it less palatable to a larger audience, which is why it's an interesting gamble for somebody like Sony Classics, which, which needs that older audience to go see that movie and sort of accept what, what it is in, in the kind of art house formula. I mean, it, it is, I think, rewarding if you're open to it, but it, it, it can drag for some people who want some more immediate gratification. So does it's that It's a mean- wonderful father-daughter story, and sure. it's very unpredictable. I, I believe that it will do okay with the art house audience. I think where the question mark is is... is I think the executive committee probably put it on, and and it was the three that were added, one of the three. As far as I can tell, uh, having done a little bit of homework on this now, um, it was probably a salesman, Tony Erdman, um, and uh, and the Xavier Dolan uh, that until that got added. Um, so that suggests that it didn't play that well for the uh, folks on that first um, foreign language committee. But, that, but the, the, it's a committee that's going to pick the final five. So I will say right here now that a man called Ova is going to be in that final five, and it will likely win. That's it's pretty interesting. And, it, and you got to give credit to somebody like Music Box, not a huge company that seems to really understand how to get movies like this in the market. I mean, I have to admit, I haven't seen this movie. Now i got to go check it out and figure out if it's worth that kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of momentum it has going now. But we weren't talking about this movie even a month or two ago. And for it to I, creep in yeah, like this. I had heard, though. I mean, I had heard that it was playing well, and I had predicted it would be on the short list. But um, the, um, I, when I saw it... Um, I, I found it to be, you know, a familiar thing in the sense that it's like any, you know, sort of grumpy old man who melts kind of movie, the, the about Schmidt or, or Gran Torino, you know, one of those. But, but it, it's, it's really well done, and it made me cry, and it made me laugh, and it has this sort of dark Scandinavian humor. Um, he keeps trying to kill himself. <laughs> and Sounds like a real hoot. <laughs> Because he can't do it. He keeps failing to kill himself, and he wants to. He, he really wants to. It's funny um, how the foreign language category does, is not beholden to the same kind of rules that we sort of arbitrarily apply to, say, Best Picture, in the sense that 
you know, the, the nice showbiz kinds of movies or the uplifting movies. People say, La La Land, it's great escapism. It's the total best picture frontrunner, whereas the movie about the suicidal guy that's a comedy uh, can, can be leading foreign language. It's well, I think, a, I think what's happening there, though, is that the movie actually has... What happens with these movies that get all the... Ida was a Holocaust movie, and it was a beautiful work of art. And I would say that um, the the Great Beauty was extraordinarily beautiful. And and but the the Academy was responding to to high art. I would say in this case, this is not the high art choice, but it's incredibly well done, and the actor is amazing. He's going to be in the new Alexander Payne movie. Um, so it, it's it's a uh, it's not. Yeah, he's he's a great actor, and there's reasons why uh, this movie's. I, I I should tell you what his name is because I'm a bad, I have a bad memory. Um, and you have to pronounce it perfectly too. Oh yeah, really? <laughs> well, this is not my strong suit unless I practice in advance. Um, Rolf Lasgard. <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about right. He, he, he was a he was a he was a Wallander once in 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 Sweden. Interesting. So the, there, he, there's certainly some interesting stuff going on with the, the actor field. One major news story this week that I think we should address is Casey Affleck's situation. I mean, this is a guy who's been a front runner in the category for Best Actor. Winning I mean, everything. Yeah. Winning everything. But it's, it, the conversation started at Sundance. I mean, irrespective of, of where Manchester itself was, Manchester by the Sea, Casey Affleck, everybody was saying this is a big deal for him, and now he's he's winning all these things. It comes up that there was this lawsuit that was settled uh, when he was shooting. I'm still here with Joaquin Phoenix, and um, you know the the way in which this is being discussed is very complicated because one, it's this very delayed reaction, and two, people are are have been consistently pointing out within reason that uh, Casey Affleck has not been sort of given uh, the, the hard time for this story that, uh, that Nate Parker was for his situation on Birth of a Nation. And, it, and it's a very unique kind of thing because there, I think there are, there are some good points that are being made about uh, the, the racial issues that, that uh, come out of this contrast. Um, but it's also, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to understand why we have to have this conversation now. I mean, first of all, as a culture, these, we, we need to be asking these questions about people all the time and taking them to task for, for issues and that, that become public when they become public. And, and this was something that happened a while ago. So what's going on? Are people trying to dive bomb Casey Affleck and, you know, kind of, spoil his frontrunner status at this particular moment in time? Because it really feels like it just all of a sudden entered the news cycle a week or two ago. Yeah, uh, I, I, I saw something on, on um, oh God, my uh, Daily Beast. That's where I saw it. And I think it got, it, then it got picked up. It got picked up by a number of other outlets. So I went down and dug in and looked at the suit that was filed. And it all goes back to that awful... Um, I'm still here. Uh, documentary, the hey, one. It's not a documentary in the truest sense. It's a it's fake documentary. The, it's, the, I kind of like that movie. The so mockumentary. The, it's it's a it's a tricky situation because it's unfortunate to read about some of the things that happened on that set because I thought what they did was so fascinating. You know, pranking the public, making a comment on celebrity and so forth. But it sounds like it was also 
as boisterous behind the scenes as it is in front of the camera when you see Yes, and, and, pres- and unprofessional, perhaps. I mean, perhaps the what you're seeing on camera is what was going on behind the camera. And, you know, they weren't in hotels. They were staying at Casey Affleck's house. And there was some, um, he let um, uh, the cinematographer, who was, was one of the few women on the set, in, in his bedroom. And, and, you know, if you want to look it up, go ahead and, and do it. But, but the point is, um, why is he skating? He, he settled, you know, it's over. It was a few years ago. Um, and I think people in Hollywood, I'm not saying they should, but people in Hollywood, uh, you know, look at this as, as, you know, that's what happens on movies like that or something. And, and, and then they look at him as an artist. They look at him as someone who's established. They look at him as someone who's, who gave an extraordinary performance in a movie. And the difference between him and Nate Parker is that Nate Parker wasn't established and didn't have the bona fides that Casey Affleck has. Casey's, Casey's been, you know, nominated before. He, he, you know, he is he is well known. He he's part of of Hollywood. He's he's an he's an institutional, uh, respected figure. And and I think that if you come from nowhere really and you're trying to get established and you get. Uh, you have a situation like Dave Parker's, it's very difficult to, to escape from that. And he, we could go into all the details of what he did wrong, too. I mean, he... He, the, he didn't say he, he was sorry. That's the problem. And everyone was asking him about it. Nobody's and then on really that THR roundtable, Mel Gibson is, is he he you know, yeah. com, coming up and, and defending him, yeah. you know, with some sympathy because he knows what it's like to be in the doghouse for 10 Years and so it looks look, I see like he may be emerging difference. from that doghouse. I, I mean, I can't, I can't fully make peace with Mel Gibson because it, what what Mel Gibson's been seen to do on multiple occasions is express certain ideological convictions that are very problematic. Whereas horrible behavior in isolated incidences are not, I mean, they're inexcusable, but they're things that people can make some progress towards healing with. We could look at Wiener as an example. If Wiener had stayed clean... So to speak. <laughs> if he had kept himself zipped up, yeah. <laughs> he might have been able to become mayor of New York City. He way, was on it? the way to becoming mayor of New York is City, and then he went and did his little number all over again. Okay, let's talk about Wiener for a second anyway, because I, I kind of want to shift the topic off, off of the whole Casey Affleck thing, because I, I went to a, a lunch in New York for this movie uh, that was attended by uh, a bunch of Academy members, and... Um, People really like it, and yet there is this perception in a lot of the coverage around the movie that it's it's all OJ all the time. But Wiener, to me, is still a major 2016 movie that needs to be discussed in this context. I mean, it people really like this movie, and, and it's it's uh, there's no questions about whether or not it you know belongs in the conversation. And I think you know you hold it up along next to OJ, it's not like it. It's somehow lesser. I mean, these are both really great movies. It's hard for any movie to stand up to OJ, which is why there's such a backlash inside the community. They're complaining so vi- viscerally um, because they know it. They know that if, that because it's 
almost eight hours long. And because of the breadth and the depth and the, and the extraordinary uh, brilliance of it, that, that, that they simply, a regular two-hour movie has a tough time competing, and, and that's why everybody gets mad about it. But in fact, once you've seen it and you've, you've looked at it, you realize that it's hard for anything to compete with it. I had to. Uh, I just hope Wiener gets into the top five. I mean, no doubt. I, I, it's, it, I'm, OJ, I'm sure, is still the, the major front runner, and, and in many ways, I, I guess it, it does deserve it. It's a major statement on all kinds of different things, and, and it's experience that a lot of people emerge from still talking about for weeks and months. What I think is interesting about Wiener is that it's also, it's kind of like this thrilling real time experience to keep coming back to it. It keeps evolving as. You know, it started out being sort of this fascinating insight into a campaign, and then it became more and more a part of the conversation we were having during this election cycle, and and almost to the point where it's like a, a warning sign of what was to come. And so, I know. It's just, no, it, uh, it, it's it's really uh, there when people keep you know sort of say, well, it was James Comey that cost Hillary the election. Well, some people are blaming Wiener. No, he's an easy target. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't help. That's for sure. So we're heading into the holiday movie season, and while a lot of Academy members may be digging through their screener piles, general audiences will have a whole bunch of stuff to go through. Obviously, Rogue One continues to dominate the box office, but it's a pretty crowded market this year. There's a lot of different stuff to look at. What do we think is really going to do well during this time of the year when so many people are taking time off from work and going to the movies with uh, friends and family. Well, they're opening fences up in, I mean, that's another aspect, by the way, of the of the Oscar race, which is that there are these late entries that haven't had time to become box office hits or to get that kind of buzz and energy that comes from an opening and all the attendant uh, uh, PR that goes with it. So yeah, Denzel Washington and Viola Davis are out there on the talk show circuit. They're both big movie stars. Paramount's opening fences in like 2,200 theaters, which is pretty wide. It's a lot for a movie in which a bunch of people talk in a backyard for two hours. I mean, the question is how accessible it is and, and whether audiences are going to eat it up. I think they will. I, I think they will, and I well, think that movie stars, movie stars well. still matter in some cases. Indeed, right? because we've been talking a lot over over the past year and change about how, in some cases, movie stars are no don't no longer have the same currency they used to. I mean, back when uh, Alden Ehrenreich was um, cast as Han Solo, there were some interesting conversations along those lines. You know that uh, it's less about the movie star, more about the larger brand. But with something like this, it's kind of like the opposite effect. That's like pure movie star. This movie is close-ups of, of amazing actors just doing their thing for a while. So, and, I, and I think it's going to play really well, and I think it's going to end up, as I predicted very early on, being a stronger Best Picture contender than people think it is now. I mean, I, I'm fascinated, by the way, you know, people want to make these calls so early, and we still well, have to wait. everyone wants to be first. I but, know. I, I mean, know. What, what would have to shift to really make Fences a strong contender, because it we've could been become a big hit. It oh, could we've be, been talking you know, about get that late, get so that long. late surge. Now, the movie that's not going to be a big hit, as we've discussed, is is Martin Scorsese's Silence, Hard and selling. I'm not seeing that taking off in a big way at the Oscars. I think it's just too difficult. Cinematography, that's what it's got. Exactly going for. right. Exactly and right. That's, Rodrigo that's Prieto. It's a great yep. looking movie. 
And then, um, you know, really sad that the score got, uh, you know, disqualified. Uh, but, um, you know, they've been, that branch is so conservative, you know, they're awful about that kind of thing. Um, you know, I loved the arrival score too, and they didn't like that either. Um, but then you have, uh, something like Rogue One, which, um, may turn up in some tech categories, but I'm sure it'll be, you know, I mean, it's putting the box office for the year over the top and uh, back uh, back breaking records. So I hope. The tr- uh... Well, <laughs> people also misread the box office. They think that because the number's bigger, that means that people made money or that there were lots mm-hmm. of profits. And I think if you look at the real numbers of what movies cost versus what they returned, and you look at some of the big losers of the year, you know, you can you can. Uh, it's tricky. I mean. It's tricky it's, to really it's a get lot a of sense. a lot of movies didn't make money. Yeah, I mean the Star Wars movies have to make so much money because they're such costly endeavors. I mean, it was like billions of dollars that the studio spent just to acquire these movies in the first place. True, and then, you know, building out the kind of event feeling around them uh, is is another piece of the equation. There, I was just really disappointed by it. I mean, it, I guess word of mouth is is pretty solid for this movie, but it, it's not. I mean, There's an awful lot of discussion about what was the original movie and yeah, how much stuff was in the trailer that wasn't in the movie. For some people about where where it fits on the timeline. I mean, it's it's pretty clear where it fits, but it's a strange spot to put that story when you really think about it because the prequels have a kind of mixed legacy, and it's basically right in between the prequels and the first of the original movies. That's right. It comes it, right up against the beginning of the yeah, very first Star Wars. characters that aren't going to have a lasting you know, effect on the rest of the, the series in certain ways. And so uh, it's, just a, it's an interesting experiment, as, as uh, I think uh, Disney executives said a few weeks ago, to expand that world in different kinds of ways, although... They have been doing that in cheaper ways with comic books and video games for years. Uh, on, as, as a movie, it didn't, it didn't feel very uh, valuable to me. It just felt kind of tossed off in a lot of ways, even as they were experimenting with really uh, fancy technology. It just, uh, it just didn't coalesce. Well, uh, we can talk about that now, now that uh, the movie's out there. Are in, we allowed to? In I, theaters, I, I never absolutely. Know. What, what I mean, is it's, the, it's uh, been online now. limitations for spoilers these days? It's I, been I, online. Spoiler <laughs> alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen episode, Rogue One so. and you don't want us to spoil it for you, turn off this podcast right now. Okay? So, now we can talk about it. <laughs> so they digitally resuscitated Jar Jar Binks and uh, no, they brought they back... They did not. That is not fair. What they did was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Peter, Peter Cushing's in, was it, two minutes of the movie? Something like that? Well, here's together. what they did that they, they may have done, where they may have gone... Alright, so the question is you, you can recreate a human but how... And, and you can take a dead person and they did a, they happened to have done a 3D scan on Peter Cushing before he died. So they had the ability to do a digital human being talking and moving around, and it was his face and everything. Now, anyone who's sophisticated about this stuff can look at that and say, that's a digital face, and they know it's a digital face, and it takes you out of the movie. But a lot of people don't seem to get that, and and they're going, ooh, you know. And and then, then they do someone else. I won't give that one away. This particular character, though, is in there for more than one scene there are extended uh glimpses of him and he's 
talking and performing, and they really pushed it. That's that's the question. Should they have done that? I mean, there was a Tales from the Crypt episode in the 90s where they brought in Humphrey Bogart as a character. Most of the episode takes place from his perspective, so they didn't have to completely reanimate him. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who's been toying around with these kinds of technological possibilities for ages. So this is not a new question. And to me, I don't think there's anything ethically wrong with it. It's just that the technology is not sharp enough to to make it seem like anything more than a stunt. It doesn't necessarily enhance the story. I mean, there are ways to write around not having that character there because he's not central to the story. He's not even in the movie that much. And obviously, Darth Vader, it's very easy to have him there because he wears a mask. So... No big deal. They get him in there. Do, do we need this other one there? Not necessarily. I think all it's going to do is create more conversations about whether or not this technology can continue to be improved to the point where, you know, an actor can keep acting for generations. I mean, wh- there will be more examples of this. This question They're is not going to They're all going to get scanned. They're all, but the other technology that they use is the technology to make, you know, uh, Brad Pitt look younger in Allied or to make Ben Affleck look younger in Live By Night. And For no good that reason. one bothers me more. <laughs> it's very Let's strange. Do, so Live By Night, we can do that now. We can talk about Live By Night to the extent How bad that it's worth it is. talking about. Like, yeah, it's just forgettable. I mean, I've, I've seen worse movies, but I was just sort of, I just found it so bland. It was like a by-the-numbers kind of pot-boiler of sorts, but it, with all this kind of, you know... Tons of attitude and, and nothing to do with it. You know, I it's an attitude. Didn't ask, or someone at Warner Brothers didn't ask, or somebody should have asked. Is what? How does he advance this particular genre in some way that makes it worth watching? I well, mean, we've watched I mean, Boardwalk made, Empire. Yeah. One episode of Boardwalk Empire is better than this movie. He can direct genre well, and we already. He's a knew good that. director. And that's I, not the issue. I think what's it, what's notable about it is that you can still see that he's a good director in individual scenes here. I mean, this is an amazing car chase with a car crash sequence relatively early on in the movie. It's very short, but it, it could have used more of that. It's just that. The material he was working with, there, there's nothing there. He wrote, he has solo screenplay credit, and, and he doesn't, he, it looks like. That's where the just, real problem lies. And he's playing this character who careens through Prohibition era as this two bit criminal in, in Boston to Florida and Cuba. And so it, it should be a really kind of dramatic odyssey through all these different periods in American history, playing off of your awareness of the genre and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Look at how De Palma did it with Untouchables, with an incredible high style and, and you know great music cues and all that kind of stuff. But there are no memorable sequences. It was almost like he just sort of gave up on it after a while or something to that effect. I don't know what happened. It feels like he lost his mojo. But the other issue is that he is front and center, and this character that he's playing is a sort of a complicated guy. You feel that there's this tension between... Uh, the way maybe he was written. I didn't read the Dennis Lehane novel, so I don't know um, how much this differs, but it doesn't feel like he brought him to life as a fully-fledged character and that his way of playing him was was working. It it feels like he was was ambivalent or he wanted him to be a good guy when he was a bad guy or, and and then he wanted him to be younger and he wanted him to be good-looking and he, there, there was this consciousness of him as the star directing himself that I found very off-putting. 
Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but it's also telling that his next project will be the Batman as a director and as star. Uh, and that's why and Warner Brothers let him skate on this. I, I do feel kind of like it's a it's the kind of movie somebody could make, and and uh, a studio executive could say, yeah, that guy could make a a totally compromised blockbuster. I mean, maybe he'll well, think outside he, the box, but it's hard to uh, say. I actually, before, I, I, I have to say, based on his previous work, which I admired, I, I, I loved the first uh, Dennis Lehane movie that he did, and I loved The Town, and I loved Argo. I, I couldn't be a bigger fan of, of Ben Affleck. I loved Goodwood Hunting, you know, for which he won the Oscar with Matt Damon as a screenwriter. I think he's incredibly smart. I mean, this is one of the smartest guys in Hollywood. So where, why? Why did he go so off the rails? Now, one of the things we can do is point out that the head of Warner Brothers production, Greg Silverman, has lost his job. You know, so there this long, long history of movies that weren't as good as they should be has finally met its proper end. And and now, you know, that particular guy is out of his job. But um the, the the deal they made with with Ben Affleck, obviously, I would have said before that I want to see the Batman that he would direct. That yeah. I want to see. But Maybe he had too much on his plate to be able to direct a movie. Then why rush it? I don't know. Why rush Poor it? Poor guy. He's so busy. He didn't have time to make his movie any good. Exactly. I just don't know about that one. But you know, I guess it's a strange world we live in. He's also playing Batman right now at a stage of his career when you think. He'd be a, an actor who could move beyond those kinds of roles. But, but remember, uh, as a movie star, Ben Affleck has had a checkered career. He he tends to do better work as a director. But and this may be this the sophomore. You know, this may be the Oscar follow up curse where you get to indulge yourself in the movie that you want to make. He's and had not, a few of them, though. I mean, don't forget he was also in The Accountant and uh, Batman. No, no, Superman I'm talking about direct the directing. Sure, one. but yeah. it's all it's all feels sort of compounded because he's also in the movie. I liked him in The Accountant. Believe Believe it or not, right, I actually thought he gave a good movie. performance. My, my <laughs> accountant wife also liked that movie because she could explain the scheme to me in certain details that I didn't quite understand, but <laughs> I didn't think it was particularly well done. In any case, we'll have to wait and see what happens next year with, with Ben Affleck. He, he'll certainly still be in the conversation in different kinds of ways. Um, and speaking of which, we, we should, I think, close out this uh, last episode of the year by talking about 2017 because, um, you know, there, there are so many unknown variables in terms of how this year is going to go. Uh, for people who care about storytelling and entertainment and, and art, it's, uh, you know, the outcome of the election was obviously something that was very jarring to us, and we've talked about that. But um, I'm also just thinking about you know, the if there is any kind of community that can be sort of galvanized by hard times, it is people who tell stories. And so I was just lo- I was looking at all these sort of anticipatory pieces about, you know, what's going to happen next. And I've, I'm, I'm actually I've, I'm relatively optimistic that the film world, the film community, particularly the indie world, is going to be more productive than ever in terms of how it chooses to challenge the establishment you know, you have people like Michael Moore and others who live for this stuff. And it's not to say it's a good thing, but I am looking ahead to the new year in a way that I think will make our job more interesting in some ways because I think the stories are going to evolve very quickly, the kind of stories that we're, we're going to see being processed by filmmakers uh, and uh, the environments we find ourselves in starting 
with early next year at Sundance, which will take place during the presidential inauguration, and then and some protests, and all kinds of things like that. So lots of protests at Sundance, including uh, I think a parallel women's uh, protest to the march on Washington. I think the I went to the IDA awards, and I was in a room with a lot of people who you could imagine, you know, swung to the left. These are people who make documentaries, and they they take their journalism very seriously. Um, and and their agitprop role in in the world, and they are only galvanized. Norman Lear was there, and and uh, he was talking about how distressed he was about the election and the future. But they all felt um, this communal sense of coming together and a renewed sense of purpose in terms of of what they will do going forward. And that was a very palpable emotional feeling in the room. Uh, you did get that sense of people who were deeply, deeply upset, um, but who were more uh, uh, passionate than ever about going forward and doing the right thing. Yeah, and, and there's no reason to assume that that sentiment isn't going to continue to evolve. I mean, we live in an international film community, and I'm sure that when we go to Cannes and when we go when we see the movies coming out of Berlin and all these other festivals, the the way in which that community sort of hovers around these focal points is going to be informed by how the world continues to uh, respond to the current situation with, uh, with the incoming administration. So I am optimistic about uh, the way in which, you know, the people will put the that concern into action. I'm also look, I'm excited. Hollywood about, Hollywood's gonna definitely be be part of it and, yeah, and they will I'm double down. If the not the the independent film community certainly will, but I think Hollywood will too. Yeah, and let's see and what they, they say. won't let it go. Oscar on Oscar night, uh, I mean it's not like we have the most political crop of, of movies vying for awards, but one has to assume that with an audience that large uh, that uh, uh, there will be some conversations about these things. Yeah, maybe uh, they'll send your favorite movie, Moonlight, out there as a message. Generally speaking, I'm really happy with the way that movies like Moonlight have performed. I think that this year has been a pretty optimistic one in terms of the kinds of movies that, that I get excited about. So that concludes Screen Talk in 2016. It's been a weird year for all of us, a bit of a bumpy ride to get to this point, but we are happy to be done with it, and we are thrilled that we get to talk about movies that we love and anticipate more right around the corner. So we're going to take next week off to recuperate and rejoin all y'all in the new year. Have a happy one. Have a happy one.